Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Yeah. I will tolerate no mouth-breathing slander. Now we are recording. So welcome <laughs> to The Wages of Cinema. That is how I'm going to begin this episode. Swing! Da-dink, <laughs> Isn't that the sound that a Spider-Man makes? It's something like that, right? The little Spidey thing where it goes like... Yeah, I guess. That's better, I think. It's hard to make a sound. You gotta actually like see someone do it, and I'm doing the finger thing right now, you know, doing the little heavy metal <laughs> thing with the fingers. Um, as you can guess from our little preamble right there, uh, we are talking all Spider-Man things today, but specifically uh, from one filmmaker and one set of films, and that is the um, I, you know, we can call it a trilogy. I almost call it like a cycle of movies, <laughs> like. You know, like you have like the ring cycle, you know, an opera. You have the Spider-Man cycle from <laughs> Mr. Sam Raimi. And um, yeah, we decided to revisit these films um, in part just because, you know, we hadn't seen them in a while. And it seemed like with the new uh, Spider-Man movie coming out, it, it seemed like a good time as any. Yes. So today we will be talking... <laughs> The Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Yeah, and and I'm I'm still I'm a little bit unsure what kind of critical uh you know rap these have today because I think that in some ways it's a little mixed, but it's sort of like mixed to positive, which is kind of a shame because I feel like these movies, you know, whenever they get a bad rap, I kind of want to be like the big brother that comes in, like, hey, leave them alone, <laughs> you know. And not because like like I'm trying to be overprotective, but just because they're you know they're such warm you know giant big like hugs of movies. Yeah, I think the first two Spider-Man movies are still held in high regard, but I know for me my primary like interest in this project is. We want to start the two-person Spider-Man 3 rehabilitation campaign. <laughs> it's really good. Like, Sam Raimi himself even kind of disowned Spider-Man 3. Uh, each and every one of those Spider-Man movies were pretty damn challenging. Dragged me to hell. I was on familiar ground. Like you mentioned, it's a yeah. simple horror film. There wasn't a lot of pressure. I love playing in horror. But working in that big-budget arena with so much is at stake... Uh, with much beloved characters that Stan Lee created and people really hold them so dear to them that you don't want to mess up. And I messed up plenty uh, with the third Spider-Man. So people, you know, hated me for, for years. They still hate me. They give, you, they give you shit for that? All the time. Yeah. Why? What do they say? Um, we hate you. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a non-specific... I, I want to read into that too much. <laughs> Yeah, you're just you're just kind of trying to dig in, and I don't want I want to. What do you think they're being? Don't unpack that. Don't unpack it. So, just a, a a movie that didn't work very well. You know, I had a lot of. I tried to make it work, but um, didn't really believe in all the characters, and so that can't be hidden from people who love Spider Man. If a director doesn't love something, it's wrong of them to make it. But I'm here to tell you, 
Spider-Man Three is a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 in the kind of the same boat. Uh, and I pro I I'm actually I might have even liked it more when I first saw it, and you know, and we'll get into it later. And I maybe have a couple of things that I do have problems with it. It's not a perfect movie, but yeah, I I I'm I want to be like that person who you know comes to a movie is like now hold on hold on hold on hold on you ever have that with yeah. certain you see that with critics who will be do the hold on thing like you know uh, sometimes you get the opposite of that too you might get the person's like now hold on this is a piece of crap you people are crazy <laughs> but yeah and so again the the it seemed like a good time as any uh in particular because the the new Spider-Man movie that's coming out, uh, it's, it's no secret because it's there in the trailers uh, through, you know, the magic of multiverse uh, shenanigans. Uh, we're getting uh, the return of a number of the uh, antagonists from these movies. Yes. Yeah, so we know we're getting spider no. well obviously we're getting spider-man we know we're getting well, i hope we'd get Sp oh maybe we'll get italian spider-man <laughs> we know <laughs> we're Turkish getting green goblin and doc Ock. we know we're getting them we're also we're this is just an aside before we get into the rainy movies uh, i was a little curious because they're also bringing electro into this movie uh jamie fox and so Last week, uh, along with, you know, as we were watching these other movies, for the first time, I watched The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is from, you know, the other couple movies that Andrew Garfield did. And my God, that was bad. <laughs> yeah, I did not watch this because even Trash Panda Quarry has her limits. But I saw a few minutes of it over your shoulder when you were watching it, and it looked like hot garbage. It, 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 and him especially is is really just a baffling kind of embarrassment. Like, you know, from everything from his look to, you know, how he performs in the movie to even how he becomes Electro, it's just like, oh, my God. Every, and, and it's amazing then that, well, amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a little odd that they're bringing him back in. It almost feels like I get the sense that because the Raimi movies, you know, they didn't get to number four. Um, instead they transitioned into the amazing series. You know, there aren't, there are only so many villains that they can port over into no way home. And so it's like, well, I guess we got to go to electro. And I, I think I, it's really quick in the trailer, but if you may notice if you watch it again, they did away with his like stupid blue look. And it's just like Jamie Foxx's regular face. Well, when <clears throat> the new Spider-Man movie comes out, you are probably going to be literally the only person <laughs> with a fresh memory of the amazing Spider-Man two in the uh, theater. And I, well, yeah. And I wish I didn't remember it so well, because it's just, Actually, what would have been hilarious is if, like, just to fuck with audiences, instead of the James Franco hobgoblin, they brought in uh, Dane DeHaan, <laughs> who was just like, whoo boy. That, that's a whole other episode, though. But, yeah, but, again, we're, but again, we're not talking about that movie. I just wanted to mention that, like, for what you can expect in, the, in those movies, because supposedly 
it's the Sinister Six, and that's what they're setting up. But, but again, we're not talking about Sinister Six either. We're talking about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. And going back to the first one in 2002, uh, I don't think I need to... Re- Do I need to recount the origin of Peter Parker? <laughs> well, you know, as podcast hosts with great power comes great responsibility. I know. I know. It's, it, it takes, you know... You have to bring old Cliff Robertson back in there to, uh, you know, give that monologue. I mean, well, for those two or three people who don't know how Peter Parker came to be in this particular version of events. The truth is, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Can I take your picture for the school paper? Sure. In this lab, we have 15 genetically enhanced super spiders. There's 14. One's missing. Peter, are you all right? I'm fine. Pete, look, you're changing. I know I'm going to do exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Uh, Peter Parker, he's kind of a dorky you know, nerdy, uh, science, uh, enthusiastic kind of teenager, uh, in high school and on a field trip with a uh, class, he, uh, gets bitten by a spider who happens to be colored red and blue. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of falls into like a deep sleep. And when he wakes up, he doesn't need his glasses anymore. He, uh, can you know, do all, he has super powered strength. And, you know, he has uh, webs that shoot out from his body um, organically, which, you know, we can even get into that a little bit once I get through this part. Um, and, you know, he, he at first doesn't really take the power that seriously. He tries to become a wrestler <laughs> as the, quote, human spider and gets renamed by Bruce Campbell in a cameo uh, as the Amazing Spider-Man. But while he's on this wrestling trip, he decides like, ah, eh, screw it. I'm going to, you know, not help out this guy who's getting robbed because I got cheated out of some money. But, oh, my God, the guy who robbed my, you know, shitty promoter uh, also carjacked my Uncle Ben and killed him. So, you know, he, you know, th- th- that leads him to realize, no, I have to really take on more responsibility. And thus Spider-Man comes into you know be as a real trying to be a superhero but meanwhile you also have green goblin who uh becomes from norman osborne becomes from norman osborne that's a weird phrasing uh but and that's a you know and that that itself is a really great storyline in this uh, story because you know peter's friends with norman's son harry osborne and you know, wackiness ensues. I don't know if I did a good sum up of that. I know, yeah. I know, I went over sixty seconds. So, uh, and the award Oscar goes to would not like my <laughs> summary of that. Yeah. So this has the bones of a classic superhero origin story, and so there's not anything super like formally innovative in it, but I think. For a classic superhero origin story, this really works because there's 
an earnestness and a sincerity to it. And what I, what really like struck me when we went back to these movies was how full of feelings they are. How yes. Every. Well, why don't you tell the, the, the podcast listening audience what you said to me at one point as we were watching Spider-Man 1, because I will never forget these words you said. Well, I don't know what you're referring to. You, so you, you said, said, the movie looks great and it's full of feelings. Yeah. That basically... <laughs> when you were trying to sum up like your thoughts on the movie, you're like, it looks great and it's full of feelings. Yeah, that's what I like about it. <laughs> Which is what, you know, you basically summed up the entire history of cinema like or what cinema can do in those words well yeah it looks the movie looks great because the movie's old enough that it's before every superhero movie was covered in five layers of cgi gunk in every single scene yeah like well what i would i would totally agree with what you say about the sincerity part of it um i i i, I always like this movie and i think i like it more actually as i get older like i think in general i like spider-man and the comics more as i get older just because i i feel like that he you know stan lee and then all the other people that have written and drawn spider-man over the years of course i'm sure that they had some downtime you know downtime parts but i just like how he's not someone who has like all the resources at his disposal he has to you know deal with all kinds of problems while also be trying to deal with being Spider-Man. And I think Raimi manages to convey that in a way that also, you know, he connects it into the personal story involving Uncle Ben and his Aunt May and everything emotionally that he's dealing with that. So, you know, he he, he makes it completely relatable while including all the action and things that people expect from a comic book movie. Yeah, I like that. There's not this sense of ironic distance mm. from big emotions. Like, I'm, I, you know, I am on Twitter. I shouldn't be, but I am on Twitter. So I, I see the memes people, like, spread around. And I feel like there are a lot of memes out there, even years later, making fun of some of, like, Toby Guire's, like, emote faces. To Toby Guire? Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> you got rid of the ma part. That's how, you know, effeminate he is. We have to take out the ma part. Of his no. But no, I absolutely agree. Yeah. You, you've probably seen the meme of Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker crying over like Uncle Ben or, you know, getting super emotional. And, and, you know, I, I am not going to be, you know, one to be around the bush here. I think he's fantastic as Peter Parker. I, I think that he is, it's hard for me to say if he's my favorite entirely, because I think Tom Holland is probably a funnier Peter Parker. Like, he manages to get that part of Peter Parker right. But what Tobey Maguire gets is just that, like, intense vulnerability. Yeah, vulnerability is a great way to put it. Like, he... Toby Maguire's Peter Parker creates in the audience this very strong protective energy. Yeah. You feel very kind of maternal towards him. Um, maternal. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I can't help it. It's a funny little, like, thing. So, right. 
But yeah, you wanna you wanna like nurture him. And I what I like about this character is I feel like Sam Raimi over the course of the entire trilogy took this character more places emotionally than yes. a lot of other even superhero trilogies go. So I was really I really appreciated the range of emotion that Peter Parker is able. Yeah, and what Maguire brings to the part, like he he definitely is he does Raimi and his writers don't forget that you know, this is a teenager. You know, teenagers fuck up. I mean, that's what teenagers are kind of good at. They they really can make very big mistakes or even really small mistakes and often with the ones that they care about the most. And, you know, and you see that here in ways that, you know, especially by the end art, you know, will have implications for, you know, the rest of the movies as far as, you know, him and MJ and him and uh, Harry. Um, and I, I think they pulled that off especially well that in a way that it, it, it also helped, you know, sometimes you see some of these comic book movies nowadays, and it's like, oh, we have to be so serious. We have to make these more adult. You know, we can't be addressing kids. And no, like, Raimi has, you know, these movies, I think, are great for kids, but they also work for adults because they don't treat kids like idiots. They don't treat adults like they, you know, have to be held by the hand or anything like that. Um, and that's... In a what in a sense, I feel like these movies will probably age a little better than. Damn, if I say it, you know, as much as I like the the Nolan Batman movies, they'll probably age better than those. Well, yeah, I found too. Tonally, I think this movie's distinct from both the joyless slog of death that is a lot of like the DC. Yes. Movies, but. I also think it's kind of tonally distinctive from a lot of the MCU movies because while there is humor in all three of the Spider-Man movies, I don't think it feels like the type of humor that you get in MCU movies. No, no, you don't. I, I mean, Raimi embraces, he, he obviously embraces some wackiness and especially I'd say in this movie, in the third movie, really all three of them, but in particular in this one, you know, he has a wacky sensibility that, you know, is in a lot of his other work, too. I mean, just in terms of how he'll push in with a camera shot, you know, like how he'll move in on a character's face or a particular moment, or even just the designs. I mean, with, you know, Green Goblin, you know, and I, I kind of love Green Goblin's look because to me, I, I feel like both in, in a weird way like people make fun of peter parker for being so dorky and goofy in particular in part three which we'll get to talking about that but i feel like the look of green goblin is something that a closeted nerd like norman osborne would also make <laughs> you know like something that has like <laughs> you know looking like a gargoyle but you know also like a cheap halloween costume yeah the main characters so you know like Peter, Harry, Mary Jane, they're not quippy the way like MCU main characters are. So I would say the humor in the movies comes more from like supporting characters and cameos yes. and from 
the way scenes are shot more than well well also the mood of it too but i think that the sincerity in the humor comes more from the behavior in the moment as opposed to again like ironic distance and like another thing i wanted to point out uh while watching this was i i constantly between these three movies i flashed to the the superman movies you know the 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 christopher reeve donner ones you know, part of that was because we just watched those relatively recently. But I real I really have to wonder if Raimi was especially kind of basing part of the template from those stories. You know, yeah. and down to you know, down to how like you know, so much of the newsroom at the Daily Planet is like the Daily Bugle <laughs> with and J. Jonah Jameson, uh Chef's Kiss. So yeah, I would say I think these movies are kind of serious at times without being heavy. So the movie take and this is true I think for all three movies, but f- since we're talking about the first one, I think this movie takes the idea that these characters are wrestling with serious problems that deserve to be treated with respect. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent way to put it. Um, yeah, that they he as fantastical as you know the what we're seeing is you know as much as it's like wow you know you have all this you know sci-fi you know elements involving how you know norman osborne you know transforms himself and how you know the spider how that works and everything when it comes to people just having conversations it it's pretty grounded like mm-hmm. you know i really i really love that one scene well there are a couple of those scenes in the first movie where like Peter's going outside, like take out the trash at night, and he hears, you know, uh, the arguments inside Mary Jane's house, and she comes outside, and she's like, "Oh, I guess you heard that." And he's like, "Well, I, I can't help it." And like they, they have this just basic conversation, like, you know, that's like that feels like it's out of like an indie drama. It's not something that you n- normally associate with, like, oh, this is a big, you know, blockbustery type of thing. So. You know, when, you know, he doesn't shoot those scenes, you know, in a way that's distracting. It's just, here's a shot, here's a shot. But you know what's happening without needing to, you know, even have on, like, the audio. Do you know another thing watching the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies um, made me realize? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually, I like both the, like, Tom Holland MC Spider-Man movies a lot. So... Even though I think they're, like, quite different from the Raimi movies, I really like them. So this is not... I don't want to crap on them because I like them a lot. Yeah, but no, I, I do too. When I was thinking... When I was watching the Raimi movies, I feel like Aunt May has been kind of an untapped resource in the Holland movies compared to the mm, Raimi movies. Yeah. Because when, Ra- when I watch the Raimi movies, like, Aunt May is just such a heavy hitter emotionally. Yes, she is. Absolutely, yeah. Any scene that, like, yeah, those are the scenes in those in the movies, but in all three of them. But God, the scene where you know, um, you know, and this is after Uncle Ben has died, and I think it's after they've had the funeral, and you know, Peter's back, you know, home, and Aunt May comes to talk to Peter, and he just kind of breaks down about like how like much guilt he feels about with Uncle Ben you know, her reaction to him in that moment, it's like, you know, that's so real. And I feel like her, you know, the writing for her is so good. And she 
is also adds to that part of when we talked just before uh-huh. about the vulnerability in Maguire. I think Rosemary Harris compliments that by having that very motherly role. Yeah, like Aunt May like, is so good. Like I, I wish you know everyone should have like a grandma or an aunt like Aunt May. Yeah, and I feel like the like mo- the MCU Spider-Man movies for all their other virtues. I don't really Aunt May. I feel like it's not really like a thing in them. No, I mean, well, Marissa Tomei pops up, and you know, in a in a in a weird way, she's like eye candy in those movies because <laughs> you know, Marissa Tomei is still pretty hot. Yeah. You know, and it's like a weird thing to say, like, Aunt May, I'd tap that. <laughs> but yeah, kind of making Aunt May hot was like their only innovation in the MCU. I But the well, I will say well, I remember I I think in is it in the second movie or the first movie that she almost has a thing with like happy? Yeah, there's a flirtation Yeah, there. that's like the one thing they gave her and and you're right, like you you miss the pathos of that, you know, of their relationship. And I think that was something Raimi realized, like, you know, in order for us to really feel a little more like we can identify with Peter, he, you know, we need to see his, you know, relationship with this character, with this person who, you know, is a little bit, you know, is older and wiser and can have that sort of role for him. And without that in, in a way, I think that with how they tried to reconcile that in, the Tom Holland movies is that Tony Stark took that role. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Because he has to be plugged into this universe, Tony Stark kind of becomes his Aunt May. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, you're right. Yeah, he kind of does. That's and I'll be curious then if, you know, maybe in this third movie Aunt May will have more of a role, but you know, who knows? Oh, I wanted your opinion on something. This isn't about Spider-Man 1. This is about Spider-Man 2 and 3. Okay. When we rewatched the movies, I kind of felt like the movies were insinuating that Aunt May knows Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And that in hmm. the second, like, in the second movie, when, like, you know, Peter Parker has, like, given up the mantle he's lost his powers there's that scene where she's you know in the backyard getting ready to sell her house and they have this conversation about responsibility i thought maybe that was insinuating she knows and then in the third movie there's another scene where again she talks to peter about spider-man in a way that to me i thought the movie was insinuating aunt may knows what's up was that your read on it? Here's the thing. I you you're you have a really good I could kind of read that too. I think it's left pretty ambiguous though. I think if you want to read into it, it's there, but I don't think they ever make it so clear cut exactly. Mm. Um and it's interesting because I, you know, I I actually one of the few comic book series that I read that was like a long running series was uh Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, which came out, which was really, you know, this from like the two thousand from that era in the two thousands, and in that, like Aunt May really doesn't know, and then when p- finally Peter tells her, like they have, like it's a really big deal, and like they sit down and 
you know, it's a very emotional, you know, big scene. Um, or it's like a series of scenes. But in this, you're right that, like, maybe in a way she knows, but she can't really say it. It's, I don't know for sure if I could say confidently that she knows he's Spider Man. Like, I, do you know why they might have done that? Here's how I read it. And I agree with you. Like, this, it's ambiguous in the movie, but we know. Peter really values his secret identity. And Peter, um, you know, is very, very concerned about endangering people around him. It's why he repeatedly, like, shoots down Mary Jane. I kind of read it as Aunt May knows Peter needs to believe he's keeping this secret. Hmm. That Aunt May knows, like... It would cause Peter a lot of stress mm -hmm. if Peter if Peter knew that Aunt May knew. Do you think that if and I'm following on this track, do you think that she figured it out? Uh, do you think she knew before the scene? And I know again, I know we're talking about Spider Man Two, and we'll go back to Spider Man One. But like when she when that set piece with Doc Ock happens at the bank and he, you know, takes her and that, you know, Peter's there one moment and then he goes, you know, quickly goes into Spider-Man's outfit and, you know, chases after them up the building. Do you think that's when she figured it out? Yes. Yeah, I think that might be a light bulb moment because she even says in the movie, she references that like Peter abandoned her and like, she knows that's not who Peter Parker is. She knows that Peter would not leave his elderly aunt. Like, by herself yeah. unless but no i this i don't remember what i thought of this at the time when i saw it but when we rewatched it my particular fan canon is in spider-man 2 and 3 not in spider-man 1 but in spider-man 2 and 3 aunt may knows peter parker spider-man and actually I'm probably the only person in the planet who um, is thinking this. But you know the woman who plays Aunt May is still alive. Wow. Rosemary Harris? Last Really? I saw her in something uh, like last year. Yeah. I hope she... I'm just going to Google this because... Yeah. Well, I remember her in uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. She's actually the... Uh, she, she gets... Well, she's in that opening sequence uh, and, you know... Ha unfortunately gets gunned down uh but yeah that's it yep you know, she is still alive so you know it'd be a great thing if in no way home you have a scene where you have they rosemary harris and marissa tomei recreate the do the the two spider-men pointing at each other <laughs> beam. you no you 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 yeah i <laughs> what i was thinking of that i saw her in is she had a she had a small role in this um thoroughly mediocre HBO show called The Undoing. Oh. So, since we are doing the multiverse, I'm probably the only person yeah. longing for this, but, like, it's can a... we get a little old-school MA? No, I love... No, I like this theory. That's, like... That's, like, my completely unfounded theory um, as another little tangent in, in the Tim Burton Batman movie that, like... That that Bruce Wayne has actually like kind of made up 
in his mind from like a twisted memory that uh that the joker uh you know killed his parents even though he probably didn't Uh. like and you know the joker never fully confirms it he just happens to have that like phrase that he used i don't know that's my like (laughs) that that's probably not a correct theory but I like to think of that, that he's just, like, that fucked up in the head that he, <laughs> you know, thinks that the Joker killed his parents even though he didn't. So, yeah, Rosemary Harris, 94 years old and still kicking. So, yeah. I... She's looking at Clint Eastwood like, bitch, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, but, anyway. So, yeah, this movie basically... Every character, every major character, um, maybe one, like, partial exception I'm going to get to in a minute, is compelling. Very well, very well drawn and believable. Yeah. And also, I got, we got to take a minute, I think, to talk about uh, Norman, Norman Osborn and Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Well, now, Willem Dafoe, I feel like. The culture has maybe done him a little bit of a disservice in the sense that I feel like his turn has been a little overshadowed in the popular imagination by Doc Ock Mm. and like Spider-Man 2. But Willem Dafoe is incredible. He is. He and like I what I like about him so much is that he you know, in both the first and second one of these movies. You know, the, these villain characters, they, you know, they don't start off like, ooh, I want to do all this. It's just a very gradual thing of their, like, their entire world turning upside down. And, you know, the worst parts of themselves, like, are coming out, like, completely. And I I just really love how, Nor- like, Defoe plays it every step of the way. And... Especially, like, once you get to that one boardroom scene where the rest of Oscorp, like, you know, cans him. Yeah. His reaction to that. Oh, oh, so good. So very good. And, um, and yeah, like, you could tell that he's, ha- obviously, he's hamming it up a little bit. Yeah. But that's kind of, I like that. I feel like it fits the sensibility that Raimi's going for here. And you kind of, I feel like it serves as this interesting connection i think to peter parker where you know he's also kind of coming to grips with his own powers but norman osborne you know his way of reacting to it is like you know fuck it i'm gonna like throw a bunch of my like bombs at people and you know and go after the ones that i think did this to me and it you know oh god and that once you get to that Oh, the other thing too is that you know, isn't it refreshing? We I think we talked about this when we were watching the movie. We don't have a big climax. It's like, oh my god, everything, the world or the city is at stake. It's just, you know, here's the thing happening at this bridge, and here's the thing happening in this courtyard. It's so nice that the final fight is basically just Peter and Green Goblin fighting, and of course Mary Jane is there and. You have the thing of you have to save her, or you have to save this bus full of orphans, or whatever it is. It is. It's literally like a trip. Well, it's like a school field trip, but it's yeah. basically save Mary Jane or save the orphans. And Willem Dafoe, 
He gets lots of, like, juicy monologues. Also, I said to you, how do I put this? The physical structure of Willem Dafoe's face <laughs> also does some truly excellent work here. I mean, he's made of cheekbone. Yes. You know, he, he's made... <laughs> his face is, like, a well-sculptured, like, Greek god. And like it, well, wasn't there like somebody on somebody on Letterboxd had the the quote of why is why is Willem Dafoe need to put on a mask? His face already looks like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's so it's so good. And Norman Osborn has like a compelling backstory, and it's really nice and refreshing to watch a super, superhero movie where the stakes are personal and local. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it too. Like it's not very much like all it's New York all the time. Also, it's nice that most of the time it's just Willem Dafoe in the suit. You're an amazing creature, Spider-Man. You and I are not so different. I'm not like you. You're a murderer. Well, do each his own. I chose my path, you chose the way of the hero. And they found you amusing for a while, the people of this city. But the one thing they love more than a hero is to see a hero fail, fall, die trying. In spite of everything you've done for them, eventually they will hate you. Why bother? Because it's right. Here's the real truth. There are eight million people in this city and those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of lifting the few exceptional people onto their shoulders. You, me, we're exceptional. I could squash you like a bug right now, but I'm offering you a choice. Join me. Imagine what we could accomplish together, what we could create. Or we could destroy, cause the deaths of countless innocents in selfish battle again and again and again until we're both dead. Is that what you want? Think about it, hero! There's not a lot of, like, CGI goblin. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there was some, but, you know, and also, like, this was the, the case, I, I was watching a behind-the-scenes on this with Doc Gawk, and I think... Raimi tried to do this with both Goblin and, and both of these characters, you know, trying to have as much practically as possible yeah. so that, you know, the, the, the CGI was more like a garnish. It wasn't like the main course, which is another thing that I think a lot of the MCU movies have, you know, forgotten, which is that we really want to see someone there yeah. and to see, you know, the special effects that as much possibly there so that, also, the director can direct that and get performances out of it, you know? Yeah. The only the only performance I think doesn't, like, totally work in this movie is... I don't think James Franco comes into his own until Spider-Man 3, honestly. I think he's not, like, a particularly important character in Spider-Man 1, but... I feel like he's a bit like stiff and wooden in both Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2. I here's the thing. I think that 
I think he's better in two. I think it's like a gradually yeah. increasing scale. Like in one, yeah, I think he is still part of it is because his character isn't given a whole lot to do. Yeah. You know, he's basically there as Peter's friend and Norman's son. He's occasionally be like, What's going on, Dad? What is the thing weird? Peter, oh my god, help. And then yeah. like he has a good scene at the end in the cemetery. And then part two, you know, the problem is his character by design is a bit one note because his whole thing is, I hate Spider-Man. He killed my father. Kill, crush, destroy. But I still think he had a few more moments in there that at least showed like James Franco was able to get a little bit more into there. And then, yeah, by the time Spider-Man 3 comes, that's really more of his movie. Yeah, so I I feel like in Spider-Man 1, the script doesn't give him a lot, yeah. but also, I don't think the actor brings a lot to it either. Well, that was also, you know, James Franco was, at that time, kind of coasting on, hey man, hey, this is my, this is my <laughs> personality. Hey, Peter, what's going on? You know, it doesn't lend a lot, and Although the casting, it really is ideal because James Franco looks like he's like the preppy cut from the cloth of Willem Dafoe. He looks too. You mentioned how Willem Dafoe is all cheekbone. James Franco is all cheekbone. Yeah. So it's a good casting in the sense that you could see how James Franco sprung from the loins. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing that... Uh, um. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, that I, I, I'm just going to forget it. Um, but yeah, yeah, that they that they managed to get that casting right really helps. Um, you know, and again, all the supporting cast. It was fun seeing a couple of faces that you know have now obviously gone on to bigger things. Mm. You know, Joe Manganiello is Flash Thompson. I didn't even recognize him. You had to point him out to me. He had kind of a baby face. And yeah, he has a great little scene with, uh, you know, where he's being, you know, bully ass Flash Thompson in the high school. And, you know, Peter punches him across like a hallway. And yeah, he's great in that scene. Octavia Spencer shows up as like the person letting in people at the wrestling match. Yes. Um, oh, for those, anyone who doesn't know, Joe Manginello later went on. He played Alcide in True Blood. And he's in the Magic Mike movies. Yeah, yeah. And you, you've seen him in, in stuff ob in here and there, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I'm trying, like, it, it's just, uh, oh, also, too, I mean, Cliff Robertson as Uncle Ben, that's one of those parts that, again, like Glenn Ford is uh, Pa Kent, you have, like, this real old-school actor, you know, imparting this wisdom, and... I, in a way, I actually think that's one of those things that, as much as I like the Superman movies, I think there were so, certain things that Raimi did better in his films than even Donner and Lester did in their movies. And, like, one of those things, I think, is, like, I really felt more of the relationship between Peter and Uncle Ben than I did in, you know, in you know between uh, Clark and uh, Pa Kent. And, like, just that one car scene, it's like, you're like, oh, you know, and you know what's coming. And yet you're fully invested in that moment between those two characters where, you know, and he tries to give him this wisdom. And, you know, Peter's just like, no, I don't want to hear it. You're not my dad. And he's and like, you could see, like, the, the sadness on his face and 
you know, like, oh, this is the last time they're going to talk to each other. But there's this, like, little tragedy in that that I think is just really well played. Yeah. I And this should be our final word before we kind of move on to the next movies. Yeah. Is that what I like about this movie is that it trusts that the characters are enough. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a very character-first yes. superhero story. And it trusts the fact you don't need a plot that's super complicated. You don't need cosmic stakes. You don't need um this, like, you don't need the fate of the world. You just need, you know, a small group of people trying to get by in the city and one teenage boy who's got to yes. learn how to harness his special webs. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, as a teenager, boy, as a teenage boy, I know what it's like to harness your special webs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, no, I do have one last thing to say uh, before we move on. The, um, that uh, kiss between uh, Spider-Man and MJ still pretty hot. Iconic. There is a reason why they recreated it on the OC. <laughs> <laughs> If you know, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've seen that episode. No, you yet. didn't get there yet. No, and yeah, she's uh, and and as a thing, I'm sure a lot of young boys watching the movie were also appreciating the two friends that Kristen Dunst brought to the party. Yes, it must. <laughs> it must have been cold on set that day. Yes, very cold and wet. All right, Spider Man Two. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Barker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your Peter. Your grades are declining. You always appear exhausted. I know I'm trying. Where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try. I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. Um. The jewel in the crown. Yeah, I mean, it's only like you know, one of the top five superhero movies. And, and that's fine. What's interesting is like the first time I I saw Spider-Man two, I remember I like this, but I wasn't as over the moon as like everybody else was. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is a good B plus movie. Uh Obviously I was wrong. And the movie is absolutely spectacular. Ah, ding. See, I was blown away by this, by everyone else. Um, but you might have... I think I was maybe just slightly more snobbish by that time. Although, um, I had one of my great movie-watching days, though, because I saw it with a friend, and after we saw Spider-Man 2, we went back to my house, and I had never seen Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. And I put that on, and that just blew, blew my mind, and I was like, damn, Sam Raimi's got it. Well, I'm sure when we review the um, next Spider-Man movie with the whole Wages of Cinema crew, we're going to razz guest star Matt for calling Spider-Man 2 overrated. Yeah. Um, I, the, the thing is, like, the, the funny thing is we watched Spider-Man 2 again together. 
And then I happened to be one day at the gym recently. Um, and, you know, you have your little uh, gym machine and it has on TV channels. And Spider-Man 2 happened to be playing on uh, T- TNT. And I didn't have on any audio. I was listening to music on my, my phone. And yet, one of the, th- the one of the things that's so strong about the movie is you can tell everything that's going on without having to have on any sound in the movie. And I think that is a real strength that not all movies have. Like even like another time recently, I watched Dr. Strange and that I didn't have on audio. And yet there's like a lot of scenes where it's like, Oh, this character's talking, this character's talking, but that's not the case in Spider-Man two. You always know what's going on, but the dialogue itself is pretty damn great too. (laughs) So yeah, this kind of continues the coming of age arcs for um, both Peter and Mary Jane. Yes. And and also you and then you you throw in the uh, the story of Otto Octavius, who you know Peter meets because he you know Harry happens to be working with him and he wants to write a paper about him, you know, and they have you know, and, but then Otto Octavius is trying to you know create this I don't know like it's almost like a hadron collider or something like that. Do you remember the name of it? The science. Yeah, the in science this movie. doesn't matter. It's it's the, the doobly doo. Yeah. He's creating a big energy doobly doo, <laughs> and it goes haywire. And you know, and uh, and Octavius uh, has like this little chip that where he's controlling these you know mechanical arms, but then the chip breaks, and so the arms now are ta- have taken over him, and you know he's ruined. But he decides, no, I got to keep going with this experiment. And that leads him to, you know, a life of crime and a life against, you know, and going against Spider-Man. Um, and it's just so such a epic story that is like an intimate epic, if that yes, makes sense. That is such a good way to put it. Well, the other thing with Doc Ock is in his hubris in trying to operate this experiment, he kills his wife and long time. Mm-hmm. Yes kind of compatriot and we've been introduced prior to the movie to doc ock and his wife and the movie has to establish their relationship in one scene so like Raimi has one scene to set the stakes for the idea that like this is a couple that's deeply in love and doc ock is going to become deranged when he inadvertently kills her. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, it's a really terrific scene where like Peter is sitting with Octavius and the, and his wife and you know, he's kind of laying out for Peter, his view about science and Peter's telling him about his life. And what's great about that moment is like Otto actually helps to advance Peter's story a bit. Cause he gives him the advice of, you know, well, women love poetry and then Peter yeah. starts yeah. reading all this poetry that he wants to try to use to impress MJ. And so it's not just like this self-contained scene. He actually is there as like a, you know, he's friendly with Peter and you know, that kind you know, even more than with Peter and Norman Osborn, he's there as this figure of like, Hey, like I look up to this guy in science and I want to try to, mm-hmm. you know, try to, do, you know, I know the kind of things he's going for. And that makes uh, Otto Octavius's, you know, descent into, uh, 
you know, criminality, you know, all the more tragic. Like, he's such a, you know, tragic villain. Yeah, he's... Yeah, because you feel for him fully. Like, you you wish that he didn't go down this path, and yet, you know, he's becoming... It, it's it's a true, like, kind of... I don't know if I said this during the rev- the movie or I said it in a review, but, like, he's... Frankenstein becomes the monster. Yeah, and also the final resolution with Doc Ock is incredibly satisfying. Like, referencing another movie, as you know, I didn't like the movie Wonder Woman 1984. I don't think it's a good movie. But one of the things I did like about this otherwise bad movie is the fact that Wonder Woman and Max Lord talk it out at the end. Yeah. And there's an appeal to humanity. And that's kind of any time a superhero movie actually lets the hero and villain like talk it out. Yeah. Which doesn't happen super often. I am all about that. And I really love that the final resolution with Doc Ock is again not some like CGI vomit battle, but appealing to that sense of humanity. Yeah, yeah, that he's trying to he's trying to tell him to to stop what he's doing and you know, it, it's and in a way what happens with Doc Ock mirrors other things in the movie. I mean, you know, Peter is you know, starting to become a lot more, you know, his, as Spider-Man is becoming more well-known, you know, there's all, there's the theme of ego. And that also continues a bit into the third movie, you know, by a lot of leaps and bounds. And that also is there with MJ as like, she's becoming this big theater star and, you know, Peter isn't there for her. It's like, you know, what are these characters, you know, what they want is like such, so strongly conveyed in the movie. And yet, you know, how, you know, they're, they're each trying to wrestle with that and they're kind of succeeding or failing in different ways. And that even connects maybe somewhat into Peter's whole identity crisis. Yeah. So Spider-Man 2 is very concerned with the burdens of heroism Mm-hmm. And we see Peter Parker, the need to maintain a secret identity is really kind of wrecking his life. He can't keep up with his studies. He's very intelligent and naturally gifted. He loses all of his jobs. Yeah, he can't keep a job. He's poor. He can't keep up with his studies. His interpersonal relationships are deteriorating. And... His landlord sucks. Yes. <laughs> Even his landlord is a piece of crap, but, you know, nice the, daughter. The landlord's daughter, yes, is pining. God, even the landlord's daughter, such a great character. Well, this this mo- this entire series has such a great sense of, like, little cameos mm. that don't get a ton of of attention and aren't like super plot relevant, but do such a good job of making the world feel like vivid and lived in. Yes. And so like Peter Parker is really going through a crisis and he has this great moment where he's talking about like, I don't want the world. I just want like a job and a girlfriend and is it wrong for me to want these things? Why am I being like tortured like this? Yeah. And he, and then at the same time, there's, you know, what comes to a head too is, you know, a lot, you know, what he has never really spoken of about uncle Ben. And that finally comes out 
that he finally has to, sits down with Aunt May to tell her what happened, you know, that night. Like, that scene was, like, such... I, I almost came to tears watching that scene. Yeah, me too. And also, because I'm, like, the biggest sap ever, of course, the subway scene. Yeah, yeah, oh, God. Oh, the, oh, the subway set is, like, you know, it, where he, for, like, ten seconds becomes Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's an incredible little scene. Um, Well, big scene. It, it's... Yeah, it manages, as you said, he just wants these things, but, you know, life is just kind of, you know, fucking with him all the time. And he also, is, you know, then suddenly his powers are starting to wane, which do they never really need. I guess they don't need to explain that. That's one of the nice things about the film, too. He's just losing his powers and we get it. I this. This is not explicitly established in the movie, but I assumed his powers were waning just because he was so, like, overwhelmed and depressed. Because even taking things out of... He has performance anxiety. <laughs> well, I was going to say, even taking things out of the realm of superheroes, we know in real life, psychological stress can cause all kinds of physical mm. problems yeah. for real people outside Absolutely. of... So I... You're right. It's not like canon, but I just assumed it is kind of like performance anxiety that. Yeah. And again, the brooding superhero and the burden of superheroism story, that's the kind of story that can can be really annoying if handled poorly. Yeah. But this is handled so well. Well, well, also, too, to go back once again with, as I was saying about the 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 dynamic set up in Superman, you know, in yeah. Superman two, we talked about how you know there's a part of that movie where Superman decides like I don't want this anymore, and yet in that movie, that is a little bit more on on shaky ground because it's just about Lois, and it's you know the way that it, he goes about it, you know, it's very like oh come on, you know, but in this move, but in Spider Man two. You really get it. Like you would understand. Like we could put ourselves in our sh in his shoes and be like, yeah, yeah, that's it, that would be a lot to handle. Like I could get why he wouldn't want this anymore, and like would you know toss like the suit into uh, a garbage can and want to just try to focus more on his studies and be a good student and you know actually attend the play that Mary Jane is in and those kind of things. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's. And these are, these are, like, valid things for him to want. Like, his goals, I think, one of the things that makes him such a sympathetic character in this movie is his goals are so relatable even to, like, a general audience who will obviously never wrestle with any of the, like, heavier things that he's wrestling with. Yeah, he, you know, how many of us have wanted to, you know, have like the one that we really like in our lives to you know be with us and you know how painful is it when we let the other person down and we don't mean to and you know you know how how relatable when bruce campbell is there standing in our <laughs> way <laughs> he has another you know he has a different cameo in each of these movies um but uh yeah and i think toby Maguire once again i think he uh is fan, you know fantastic relating that like 
like I said, he's so powerful in that scene with Aunt May I was mentioning. Uh, the subway scene, like, it's ironic, I think, that people dunk on his performance when it's like he's so great as he's, like, trying to hold on to the, you know, hold on to those web shooters to try to stop that subway. And he has, like, a face that's like... And he's not afraid as an actor to look that way. He has, like, no ego about how, you know, he might look a bit, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, I... I actually think that, yeah, his performance is vanity-free when it needs to be. Yeah. Like, he's not worried about, like, always striking the correct pose. And personally, I have no problem with a movie that asserts that when you're exerting yourself incredibly, maybe your face looks a little Mm -hmm. bit weird, or when you're crying heavily, your face looks a little weird. Because that's what people look like you know in life people ugly cry (laughs) it's it's okay fellas you can ugly cry sometimes you made an interesting point when we were watching the movies Mm -hmm. which is that one one um thing that would have been more present when the movies came out um I personally didn't really tap into this when I was rewatching them until you mentioned it is all of those scenes of like everyday New Yorkers like rallying around Spider-Man have this like post 9-11 charge. In particular, well, in one and two. I, I don't yeah. know if it's so much in part it's a little there in part three. Uh. Um toward maybe towards the end. But yeah, well that was uh there's some uh, kind of trivia. Um the one they had basically shot Spider-Man before 9-11 but then 9-11 happened and well one thing was they had the there was a notorious teaser trailer that had spider-man swing between the the two towers uh-huh. and they you know they they that that was gone uh but they also the one thing they shot was in the scene on the bridge with green goblin they added the bit where all the new yorkers start throwing things at goblin is like stop that you know you mess with one of us you mess with all of us and it's you know i don't i don't care i'm a bit of a corn i can take stuff that's a little bit corny and i i think that is just good old-fashioned corn it's so good well because and even in the second movie the fact that you have these people on the subway the fact that these strangers are so genuinely moved by Peter's heroism that they'll yeah. keep his secret. Like, that's well, really beautiful. Well. Also, they didn't have smartphones. So. <laughs> heroism yeah, was easier. This, this was like the, yeah, this is definitely, they could not do that sequence in the Tom Holland movies without the secret coming out. Uh, and I know that now the third movie is going to be about him you know, being unmasked, but yeah, I think that Spider-Man 2 is like the last time that we could get that, even though, I know cell phones were out, but that was before they could get video, so, but no, that moment where they all stand up against Doc Ock is a nice moment. So yeah, I think one of the things that... It, it, It adds texture. Yeah, and I think these movies do a really good job. It's not like a main through line through the movies, but one of the nice kind of like recurring, like supporting thematic threads is the way regular people react to Peter's heroism. Yeah. And 
I think the movie does a really good job of just showing what having Spider-Man as a New York-specific superhero does for the people of New York. Yeah, and and that ends up become it actually ends up becoming a, a a small problem in the third movie because then those same New Yorkers kind of puff up uh, Peter's ego a bit in that moment with Gwen Stacy. You know, he makes yeah. that personal appearance. Yes, and I think this movie, like, Peter struggles to such a good job setting up what his arc is going to be in the third movie. Because the first two movies, Peter, you know, he has moments of joy when using his powers. But I feel like the first two movies, and especially the second movie, are much more about the burdens of heroism and about Peter struggling and angsting and feeling like he's failing. Yeah. And I and, think Yeah, I'm sorry. One of the things that makes his arc in Spider-Man 3 so immensely satisfying to me is the movie does such a good job laying the groundwork for like why Peter would want to lay his burden down and just dance. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's I hate to use this word because I'm going to sound like a like a snooty, pretentious, ostentatious like thing. But like, you know, they're very kind of existential stories. They are. Yeah. And I think that's where their strength is. And you you nailed it when you said that these movies have such a good sense of both like the intimate and the epic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, you know, it's um, as much about like nailing you know, uh, a scene where Doc Ock is scaling a big building and Peter's trying to, you know, stop Aunt May, as it is just, you know, two people are sitting down at a table having a conversation and how that itself has just as much, if not more stakes than, like, when all the special effects are flying high. I mean, and it's fun, like, when I was at the gym, like, again, I was watching, not all of it, but part of the movie, uh -huh. you have that scene where Peter sits down with Mary Jane at the, the coffee shop, and, you know, it's, that's still very much a very tenuous moment where, you know, she, she wants to know, like, are you in with me or not? And Peter's, you know, still on the fence about, because if he gives up his powers, then he could maybe be with Mary Jane and not have to worry about her, yeah. you know, being in trouble, but he tells her, no, I, I don't love you. And it just, you could see it on her face, how it like breaks her heart. And all Raimi has to do is just put like a camera down, very basic medium and close up shots as a director. And that's it. And then I feel like that simplicity then makes when he does a zoom in to make it like, you know, and he does like those fantastical shots that he's so good at, you know, stand out so much. Yeah, another thing I think this movie, this series does very well that other, like, movies of this type maybe don't do well is the movie does a good job making you root for, like, MJ and Peter yes. to get together, even though there are lots of obstacles to the relationship. And I know for me as a viewer, a lot of times those obstacles just make me want to throw my hands up the air and say, well, then just don't get together, you idiots. If you can't yeah. get it together enough to get together, then I don't want you to get together. Yeah. yeah. And that was actually to go briefly back to when I watched Amazing Spider-Man 2. You know, I mean, that had a lot of problems, but one of them was 
I just didn't really care if Peter and Gwen Stacy got together in that story because they're just like not very pleasant to each other in that movie. Even like a lot of it too is that a lot of their interactions are almost mumble Corey, <laughs> but yeah, you, and what's interesting in these three movies is you want Peter and Mary Jane to be together, even though sometimes their problems are problems they've made themselves. Yeah. So I think this movie does a good job in, investing you in a relationship that has significant both external and internal obstacles. Here's a question. Which movie do you, do you think do you think Kirsten Dunst like has like a movie where she gets to shine the most cuz I'm not sure if it's really 2 or 3. Like she's really good in one as well. Uh-huh. But which one do you think serves her the most? I don't know. It's a good question. Because I feel like two and three are doing different things with the character. Like, I think that what's interesting, and I know we're going to get more in depth into three in a moment, but I think what's interesting in three is, it's like one of Peter's worries in the first two movies is if I'm with Mary Jane, you know, I'm putting her in danger. You know, as Spider-Man, part of my responsibility is to protect, you know, the ones I love. But But then the third story... Once he finally is like, no, I'm with you, Mary Jane. What, what he doesn't, what he didn't get, what think about is that she would actually resent him for like his fame as she's like kind of struggling and what, you know, she's trying to do as an actress. I think I'm most interested in their relationship in three. So I think their relationship is most interesting that's, in three. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he got right the most. I mean, do we want to say, oh, before we wrap up in two, Alfred Molina. Oh, yeah. Such a great actor. So good. You know, he, he, he nails it. I have to also, we, we haven't talked enough about JK Simmons. I, I don't think we've mentioned him. No. Once. How could we have gone this far without mentioning J Jonah Jameson? Corey, you're fired. <laughs> no, you're hired. Here, $200. <laughs> yeah. He, he's great. You know what's the thing that makes him kind of what's what I love about those scenes is, you know, it's not just him. It's also the dynamic he has with everyone around him. Yes. Because, like, you know, you have J. Jonah Jameson and, oh, I'm forgetting who he plays, but Bill Nunn. Yeah. Radio Rahim is, this is why we would need Matt here. So he could immediately say, like, he's this guy. And I, I can't look him up right this second, but... He's really good because he's like the straight man in the scene. And then you have Ted Raimi, who is just trying to like come up with all these ideas. And like, he, you know, J. Joe Jameson is just shooting him down. And then you have Elizabeth Banks is also in it, too. And I like her, even though I first thought she was Parker Posey. <laughs> She's got the look. In the first movie. Like, yeah. But, um... He's like a much needed, like legit kind of comic character in it, and yet I still buy him as a real person in this. Yeah. He's not so overblown that he doesn't like fit in. Like he's not like uh, I don't know, like Woody Harrelson in the Venom movie, <laughs> where it's just like okay, you are just playing like on another planet, or or like uh, or like Jared Leto in House of Gucci. That's a, that's another episode altogether, but uh, um, but yeah, he I think he's really a good 
solid character in these movies that you know and i know everyone loves you know simmons is jake joe jameson i don't know what else i could say about him but he's just awesome yeah his every line of dialogue is perfect he's utterly committed and i mentioned to you i loved little like set design details like over the course of the three movies yeah. he's like medicines that he needs <laughs> on his I, yeah i didn't notice that every movie it gets more so like in the first movie he just has like roll eggs or not roll eggs tums so in the second movie he's got like pepto and something else and by the third movie he's got like a little pharmacy <laughs> on his desk i mean he's his own worst enemy in that regard he like and that's a gag like his blood pressure has gone so high and like betty is it betty brant yeah yeah she keeps on like calling into him but every time she does it like causes his desk to vibrate <laughs> or even like the um is the there's... headlines that are like put up on his wall, oh, yeah. even like the set design of the office. But yeah, it's, I guess it's hard to talk about Jay Jonas Jameson to say anything except like he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, well, he's he's like a Howard Hawks screwball character on steroids. Yeah, that's my review. Like he transplanted from like his girl Friday, but like taken to eleven. So, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to him because I felt remiss if we didn't. You're right, though. There's even though he's a comic relief character, there is like a core of authenticity there. Well, you remember in the first movie that there's the scene where uh, Green Goblin uh, attacks the Daily Bugle. And, you know, you have uh, and J. Jonah Jameson's right there. And that's an important scene because that's where he turns around. Well, for like 10 seconds on Spider-Man. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and you kind of need that moment, I think, too, to help humanize him for the rest of the movies. Yeah, so I think Raimi, I know you mentioned the Spider-Man movies. I was also reminded of um, the Tim Burton Batman movies, which yes. are kind of the pinnacle, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, well, they're well, never going to do Batman well, better. Yeah, I said it. Well, well, the other thing that well connects with that, I mean, I was talking a lot about Superman, but... I feel like Raimi's Spider-Man movies also have some connective tissue with those movies in part because Danny Elfman is doing, is does the score of one and two. Um, and so you have a bit of that influence, I think, but also I'm sorry, but I was going to cut you off. There. But the thing is, I feel like the Raimi movies like the Burton Batman movies, they exist in this, kind of like tonal space where they're definitely heightened like there are definitely things that you would think would come off as cartoonish but they still read as like totally plausible yeah and i feel like there are not a lot of directors who are able to hit that exact bullseye where they're like indisputably comic booky and they're not like muted and boring but they're also not so over the top that you lose that kind of relatability factor. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also like these are filmmakers who are really putting their stamp on these particular characters and on the on you know on these environments. You know, it's like you know you know Burton. He's someone who you know you know likes Batman, but he also likes German expressionism, <laughs> and like Raimi 
you know, he loves Spider-Man, but he also loves like, you know, Looney Tunes cartoons. And so he has like this, you know, very strange spirit to bring that he brings to, you know, his movies. And, and I have to one, I have to wonder if it was, you know, I'd love to do a full deep dive one day and on Raimi other is other movies. Cause like, I feel like it was, it was really important probably for him to make movies like a simple plan mm -hmm. and uh, the gift or stuff like that, or even like the quick and the dead. Cause it's like, you know, I'm not just the horror guy. I can also do like just movies with, you know, characters trying to deal with, you know, emotional problems. The Doc Ock arms alive scene is an excellent like horror set piece. Oh, just for that alone, like that was where I realized, like, you know, I I watching this movie again. Like each time I've watched it, I've liked it more. That's a sequence where I thought, oh, this movie's an all timer. This is like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. If like if just in that one moment, like sometimes you'll watch a movie and you'll feel like this movie is this scene reminds me what movies can do. <laughs> and yeah. So Spider-Man 2. Good movie. <laughs> yeah, it basically I feel like Spider-Man 2 it does everything you should expect a superhero movie to do. Mm -hmm. Um and and uh was it one or two that has both stars of the soup? <laughs> both Joe McHale and uh, Hal Sparks have cameos. So, yeah, it's two. Two is the one with Hal Sparks when Thank they're you. in the elevator. Yeah. Cool Spidey outfit. Thanks. Where'd you get it? I made it. Hmm. Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. You want to move to three? Yes, I think and so. I'm going to ask MJ to marry me. A man has to put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. We have some new information. This is your uncle's actual killer. We lost his trail two days ago. This man killed my uncle, and he's still out there. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. Revenge is like a poison. It can take us over. And before you know it, it can turn you into something ugly. I was actually, I was ruminating about this a lot. Even though I do think there are certain, there are a few kind of like, elements of messiness in the plotting of Spider-Man 3. I actually, not only do I think Spider-Man 3 is really good and, like, criminally underrated, I actually think I like Spider-Man 3 even more than Spider-Man 1 because Spider-Man 3 does such a good job yeah. of paying off um, certain things emotionally. Hmm. I, I think that is true. I definitely do think so. Like, 
and I, I don't give me, I, I also really like Spider-Man three as well. I, I think it is, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are some people listening right now to our podcast being like, no, but first of all, calm your ass down. And two, like, I, I think that there are certain issues with the movie, but I think that what it needed to get right, it gets mm. right really well, which is still, you know, the human relationships with the characters that we've seen. And it manages to progress you know, story, you know, parts of the story that we haven't gotten to before, which, you know, in large part is with Harry Osborne. Yeah. So James Franco, as I mentioned, and the character of Harry Osborne are, I think, two weak links is overstating the term because the fact that his character isn't that interesting is not that big an impediment to the movie. But when I watched those first two movies, I don't think much about Harry Osborn. I don't care much about Harry Osborn. But in this movie where Harry Osborn moves to the forefront, they fucking nailed it. Well, it, it gives him, again, well, we talked about this before. It gives Franco more to do as an actor. Because, again, in part two, you know, his pivotal moment is when he, you know, because he's he, he is a, a big part of the story because, again, he has the connection with Ock. You know, Ock needs, you know, this trinium thing, which, by the way, is a small side note. That's actually a real substance. <laughs> I didn't realize that. And, you know, Harry helps deliver Peter Parker and Spider-Man to him. When Harry unmasks Spider-Man and sees it's Peter, like, that's a really big moment for him. And Franco, I think, plays that pretty well. Like, it's not, you know, he doesn't mishandle that moment, and he does that well. But, yeah, in 3... Yeah, he gets to actually have more dimension. And it's ironic because it's through a kind of story device that we've seen, you know, many times before. And it's usually pretty tired, which is like the kind of temporary in part amnesia thing. Yeah. You know, because he because Harry, you know, the, you know, has a big action moment early in the movie with uh, Peter. You know, he's like, you knew this was coming. And Peter tries to reason with him. You know, because in the first movie, we didn't mention that Green Goblin dies kind of, you know, hoisted by his own petard. Yeah. You know, he gets killed by, you know, you know, it's not quite, it's not exactly like Batman, where Batman does arguably lead to, you know, kind of cause Joker to die. You know, you know, it is more of an accidental death. But, you know, Harry isn't going to listen to that, and he tries to take him out. But then Harry bangs his head and has that amnesia thing. And yet it kind of works. Yeah, I'm, I normally don't like this plot device. And it's very much, it's very like soap opera slash like movie amnesia, well, not the way amnesia would really work. Well, yeah, well, it's because like it, his amnesia is up to like the two thirds, it's up to like the end of Spider-Man 1 but not even in part because he remembers that his father died, but he doesn't remember like that Spider-Man did it. Yeah. So basically his angst comes from, he sees Spider-Man depositing the body of Norman Osborn. Um, Which I believe was also, uh, you know, there are a number of moments that they've recreated from the comics. I think that was one of them. So 
if you can live with the fact that obviously it's kind of contrived, the character would have brain damage in this specific way and no other way. If you can kind of, if you can accept that plot contrivance, it's such a good thing the movie did it because it allows the James Franco character to be really lovable. Well, he gets to, you know, smile. He's kind of, you know, he, he he's very much like, you know, I really like you, Peter. I really like you, MJ. You know, and it also, in a sense, does an interesting thing to kind of reset also their dynamic because MJ and Harry have their own, you know, kind of, you know, maybe attraction to each other. And that's explored in the movie. Yeah, so MJ and Harry had dated mm -hmm. in the first movie um, before yeah. um, she gets with Peter. So, yeah, it's a reset of the Harry and MJ relationship as well, which is really kind of put in the back burner in the second movie. But resetting the character like this, for me, Spider-Man 3 is the first time his character's like actually sympathetic. Because in the beginning... Even before Harry's like, I must kill Spider-Man, he's presented as kind of like a bratty rich kid. Yeah, he, he's basically, you know, when he's not brooding about, you know, daddy, he's kind of just, you know, a kind of a yeah, whiny rich kid who, you know, is his one other characteristic in part two is like, you're finished, Kyle! you're finished, <laughs> and then gets knocked out. Yeah, but in this movie, his amnesia makes him very kind of warm-hearted and watching him kind of renegotiate these relationships again it creates in the audience member almost the same kind of like protective energy you feel against peter because again bit. he feels kind of like open-hearted and vulnerable and I told you when we were watching it, it's almost like the conceit of that like '90s movie regarding Henry that like <laughs> brain damage is good for your personality <laughs> if you're like a rich jerk. Yeah, it, it's a good like it almost works in like a fable kind of way where a cat, but also at the same time, it you know and that you uh, the 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 thing that adds to this uh, you know feeling of pe feeling protective is you know though. In the back of your mind, well, at some point the shoe's gonna drop from the other foot or whatever, and you know he's gonna. And of course, through Raimi, you know, styling, he comes to by like looking at the painting of his father glowering at him in his room. <laughs> I love that. Like, I was hoping that they did. They would have done the thing where every time they cut back to uh, Norman Osborn's painting, like he makes a different face. <laughs> Yeah, and basically when Peter and Harry have to have their big showdowns, which they have multiple times in the movie, both actors do a great job. And I mm -hmm. actually remember from way back when this movie came out, before Spider-Man 3 came out, I had actually, I had known ahead of time that this was going to be like one of the main plots of the movie. It had come out in like the press leading up to the movie. I don't remember the trailer for Spider-Man 3, so I don't remember if this mm -hmm. was in the trailer. But I was aware going into Spider-Man 3 that, like, this was going to be one of the big yeah. kind of plot points. And I had been dreading it, like, leading up yeah. to Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Maybe part of it, too, as well, is that Franco maybe became a better actor as the movies went on. 
Like maybe earlier on he wasn't as strong, but like by three he had gotten a little bit more experience in movies. That could be because yeah, it's Harry Osborne is not, I don't think, a particularly strong or interesting character in one or two. So I was very pleasantly surprised by how when he goes from being like a supporting player to a main player, it's excellent. Yeah, it is. He gets and he has a really strong arc, you know, when it when he kind of snaps two and he remembers what happened, like because of the the what he's his reconnecting with Peter and Mary Jane, that also leads to uh Peter going through some things while he's also, you know, we, we didn't even talk about the full story with that as far as the, the symbiote and mm-hmm. how that, you know, transforms Peter as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in this movie, as you said, you said earlier at the start, Peter's in a much like happier emotional place because at the end of the movie, He's finally, like, made peace with his powers. He's made peace with the burden of being Mm Spider-Man. And he finally just kind of elects himself. Yes. Yeah, he finally realizes, no, you know what? I'm going to... I want this as Spider-Man and I want Mary Jane. Why can't I have it all? And that's... At the start of the movie, he kind of does. And Spider-Man, as you know, is actually more popular than ever with the public and... You know, and things seem really good with him, you know, him and his relationships. But, you know, but but even before the symbiote really comes into play, because that really doesn't happen to like halfway into yeah. the movie. Like, even though it attaches to Peter early on, like it's just kind of hanging out in his apartment until it's time for him for the for mm-hmm. it to really, you know. And it's funny how it happens because Peter you know, he has in this story like a uh, like a police monitor in his apartment so that he can hear, you know, stuff that's going on if he has to spring into action. And um, and then when he's like one day just, you know, has on the suit and he's lying in bed, like the symbiote goes on. But before even that happens, him, like I said earlier, him and Mary Jane, their, their conflict ends up becoming like, what how Peter's viewing himself as married, you know, as Spider-Man, how Mary Jane is viewing him, how he's viewing her in this very like, oh, she's gonna be the one I marry, but you know, he doesn't understand or reckon with what's that what that really means. You know, it ultimately is really a movie about like what it means to be in a relationship where, you know, how are you feeling with yourself in the relationship? How do you see yourself in someone else? How do they see you? And that's, you know, that that's what it really comes down to. Yeah, I think the relationship drama in this movie is very strong because MJ, basically, she resents Peter for his success and what she perceives as his self-involvement because she's struggling at the same time he's finally, like, not struggling. So... In the kind of first half of Spider-Man 3, for the first time, we see Peter not really struggling. Yeah. And meanwhile, she is struggling. She's in a play where she gets bad reviews and she's fired. And she feels like she can't communicate with Peter about 
her kind of struggles. And I said to you, this is like a mirroring of in the first movie when MJ and Harry are dating. Yeah. And MJ and MJ won't tell Harry what her job is because she's embarrassed. So she feels the need to mm-hmm. hold back now with Peter mm-hmm. the same way she held back yeah. mm-hmm. with Harry. And I also think what I like about the relationship drama too is it's not a contrived drama where one person's totally in the right and the other person's totally in the wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're well that's what I mean is that they're, you know, there's this kind of like ego you know, struggle, which a lot of young people have in relationships. Like, it's not like, oh, this is something I can't relate to. A lot of people, you know, deal with this in all kinds of relationships as one is trying to, you know, when you're trying to figure out what you're doing in your life and you're trying to pursue one career over another, especially if you're trying to get a career in the arts. I mean, that itself is always an uphill battle. Um, and yeah, n- neither of them are completely right or completely wrong. It's just that they're they're each like kind of victims of their own like you know neuro- maybe I don't know if neuroses is the word, but their own like you know as you said th- that this it doesn't come out of nowhere. Also, Mary Jane too, you know she has also that you know, she she probably has certain complexes from her own home life. Yeah, and the other thing I think we have to keep in mind is while we, the audience, have known that Peter has loved MJ for years and has carried a torch for her, if we look at this from MJ's perspective, she makes overtures to him multiple times and is denied. And we, the audience, know how much this is killing Peter and we know how much he wants her But from NJ's perspective, she declared her love for him twice and was rejected both times. Then she runaway brided from her (laughs) wedding. Yeah, from, from, by the way, uh, runaway brided from J. Jonah Jameson's son. Yeah, so. Which is a funny little thing. From NJ's perspective, she, it took multiple overtures multiple periods of intense emotional vulnerability on her part yeah to get peter to date her yeah because she doesn't see all that we see yeah and now that she's in this position it but that's why i meant earlier that like she what what peter didn't really reckon with was how she was going to deal with the relationship it was really he was really looking at it more about himself and i think that's ultimately like by the end of the movie they're both like they're back together, but it feels like it's still tenuous. Like we don't know how it's going to wind up between them. And, and, but I really like that about it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously MJ should not resent the success of her partner. That's not a good thing in a relationship. And obviously MJ should communicate more clearly and directly. At the same time, Peter should also know better than to, recreate the kiss he had with her in public with like this other chick yeah but peter yeah (laughs) peter is also being self-involved self-important and selfish in the relationship yeah you know i was thinking i forgot if i told you this i feel like that scene like 
it reminded me of it reminded me in a way of uh, where Peter has that appearance in public and then kisses Gwen Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me a little bit of like the Batman Robin scene in Batman Robin where they appear at that function. Oh, and God, po- poison yeah. ivy pops up. Only obviously much better than that. <laughs> yeah. It had a little bit of that tone to me. Um, but yeah, it's like they're yeah, I feel like yeah, that that mirror image is interesting and in how again, how one you know, and, and Peter is so in a way like he also isn't reading the signs himself. Like they're both kind of mixing, you know, they're not really even though they're in together and they love each other, the, their problem is they aren't, I feel like I'm playing marriage counselor here. Mm. You know, they're not really reading each other as they should be. Yeah. They're having communication problems. And I think part of this also comes from youth and inexperience in serious relationships. We mentioned MJ as the troubled home life, but I think one of the, one of the things I really like about Spider-Man 3 is it's willing to really go there in terms of making Peter unsympathetic. Like, I don't think, like, he does come off as a real jerk at times, but I feel like, again, we have seen him kind of struggle so much in Spider-Man 1 and 2 that his kind of descent into, like... Toxic masculinity. Yes, basically. <laughs> we were dancing around the uh, the TM words. Yeah, it basically makes sense. And also, I love the particular way that being a jerk manifests itself in well, this movie. Well, that's one of the things that I feel, mo- I feel the most defensive about this movie. And everyone kind of hates on when Peter, you know, succ- you know fully embraces... You know, he gives in to the dark side <laughs> and, you know, he he gets that fallout boy haircut yeah. and, you know, he just like outwardly is like antagonistic to, you know, his landlord and uh, and Eddie Brock. And we'll, we have to talk about Eddie Brock soon, I know. But like and then he has, you know, the dance. And yet we've talked about this over the years and it was emphasized, you know, and I was reminded that it you know still works here. You know. This is what someone like Peter Parker would do. Like it went with all of this dark energy. He would just be like, you know, he would be a total jerk ass, but there's something still dorky about him. There's yeah. a consistency, even though he's being like a jackass and you're know, doing that jazz number and all that. Yeah, and when he's shooting like the little finger guns at the ladies walking down the street, and all the ladies are like you're dumb yeah yeah exactly like he's again and i feel like this that i i don't know if ramy and ramy probably didn't intend it this way but it feels like a, a almost like a comment before hand of all of these you know how probably all these like comic book nerds in, in today's culture would see themselves if they got this kind of power yeah so i you know i think a lot of people imagine themselves as being cool if they were put in an environment like Peter, but no, most of us would not be cool if like a symbiote dropped on us. Most of us, our version of like breaking bad would be extremely goobery. If, if Peter had a, if Peter had a beach, he would surf it like Luke Perry. (laughs) He would just be like, I'm a bad boy. 
you know, and and it's very funny. I think it's unironically very funny what Raimi and Maguire do with it, and yet it leads to a very, you know, awkward, cringy, and like ultimately very sad scene where he and MJ have that like moment. Yeah, and because be- and because he's still aware. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why something like Peter pushing MJ lands so much harder than like somebody shooting someone in like a dumb action movie is because there's that, I think the very kind of like dorkiness and squareness and cringiness of Peter's like ego, it makes it relatable. Yeah. And it's like, you can understand a guy that gets like high on his own supply ego wise yeah. and pushes his girlfriend. Well, yeah, he well the or key, now ex girlfriend. Well, well, the key word is high. Yeah, because yeah, Mary, yeah, MJ breaks up with him just as this symbiote has attached itself, and it, you know, it, it only amplifies his, you know, desire to get even darker. And yeah, I feel like it's almost like it. If if we had like a friend of ours who we saw descend into drugs, yeah, it's like that, but you know, a lot funnier because again, it's like pew 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 pew. Yeah, I think this scene is excellent. I will like go to my grave saying that I also Bruce Campbell's like comic set piece in this movie. Oh yeah, that's very funny. Excellent. I think this movie like definitely dials up the intentional comedy yes um now a couple of things i do want to mention as uh issues though in the movie now one other criticism that's been levied against the movie is you know too many characters it's been it's overstuffed and i i can see that although i also but there's a part of me that still wants to push back a little bit against it because again, what I talked about before, as far as Raimi making the intimate and the epic marry together really well, you know, that's, I think, still here too. But at the same time, I wonder if maybe, like, with Eddie Brock, we haven't really talked about him yet. He's, like, another new character here. He's trying to, you know, usurp uh, Peter at the Daily Bugle as the, you know, the guy is going to photograph Spider-Man, even though he's, you know... A, a lying jerk pants. Um, but then you also have Gwen Stacy. And I almost think maybe Gwen Stacy was a little much in the movie. She doesn't really add anything to it. You could remove her from this movie entirely and it would be fine. Yeah. And in fact, like there's she she's introduced in a set piece where I don't know if it was intentional that like, of course, she's hanging by, a th- you know, but onto a thing on a building and Spider-Man comes to save her. But like, yeah, you could cut her out of the movie and you know, what if maybe instead you could have had like Betty Brant in that role as far as, you know, bad boy Peter takes like someone to the club that, that he knows MJ's working at to, you know, get her goad. And, you know, that might've worked a little better. And obviously, yeah, you have, 
you know, that the, the, the thing with the kiss, but she's a bit ancillary in the movie. You I, just need any woman. Any woman can be the woman Peter, like, recreates the kiss. Yeah, with. and maybe the part of the thought was we're setting her up because for future movies, maybe if he and Mary Jane break up, then we can get the Peter and Gwen Stacy thing, which, oddly enough, is then what they did with the Amazing Spider-Man movies. So she's a bit much. I don't feel that way with Sandman, but we talked about this when we were watching the movie that Thomas Hayden Church doesn't quite bring it the way that um, James Franco and Topher Grace do. Yeah, it's weird. If you read anything about the production of Spider-Man 3, Sam Raimi was openly disinterested in the character of Venom and really wanted to make a Sandman movie and Venom, the studio, kind of forced him into it. But what's funny to me... When I watch the movie, Sandman's the one who feels like a total afterthought. I mean, I think Sandman is a really cool special mm-hmm. effect. Oh, uh, fantastic. Like, when you see Sandman forming, like, after um, Flint Marco gets into, like, the other Hadron Collider and, you know, becomes Sandman, when that, that transformation is incredible. But you're right, he's really there to be, like, another... In, you know, another moment of uh, Peter wrestling with, uh, you know, Uncle Ben. And yet that probably could have been taken out of the movie and you wouldn't have missed much. I don't know. It's like, and it doesn't help too that, you know, the past two movies, the, you know, the antagonists were, you know, I'm trying to think of words other than spectacular now. <laughs> um, but, you know, they were so... um they had so much depth and the actors were so fantastic in them. And I don't know whether it's a fault more in the writing or in, in church, but yeah, it's a, a weak spot watching the movie again. I didn't really feel that when I saw it before, but this time his whole character is, I'm like this way. I'm doing it for my daughter. And I, I, I and I want to like that. Cause it's still like when you see Flint Marco go back to his apartment and he, you know, He's just broken out of jail. Like, that's a good scene. But, like, after that, he's really... It's like he's not in the movie that much, but he's in it enough where it's a little distracting when he's there. He seems to drop in and out at arbitrary moments as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's... Well, he's... Again, he's there for, like, a tiny retcon that, you know, it wasn't really this guy that killed Uncle Ben. It was... You know this guy plus Flint Marco, and it and it almost makes it also makes you wonder too. Like, didn't we kind of resolve not resolve, but didn't we kind of wrap up the the Peter Uncle Ben conflict in part two? And this is kind of dredging it up again, where, where we don't need it. Yeah. So I hate to be this person, but I'm actually glad the studio uh, made Sam Raimi put Venom in the movie. Because the thing is... <laughs> I you, you are the first person to say that, I think. Well, because here's the thing. There are two types of supporting characters in movies. There are supporting characters that I think are independently interesting, and there are supporting characters that exist to draw things out of your main character. So there are, like, supporting characters that are kind of utility tools to help explore your main characters and that's who eddie brock is in this movie i don't think eddie brock 
is a very interesting independent character like i don't care about the eddie brock story watching spider-man 3 but i do think eddie brock is a good tool to you like for peter parker to bounce off of. yeah yeah absolutely and in a way he's a more useful yeah he's a more useful to, well also the idea of uh and I hate to be this guy again. Like I sound like I'm putting on my critical, like pretentious pants, but like there's a kind of theme in the movie involving mirrors. Yeah. There are times where, you know, Peter's looking himself in the mirror. He puts on the black suit and, you know, he's looking on in like a mirror on this building. And in a way, Eddie Brock is this like mirror of what Peter could become if he was even, you know, a tr- you know, he was, he, if he was even more like, completely without morals yeah so i think for peter taking the symbiote to really work and i love the peter like getting infected with the symbiote you need eddie brock so yeah i'm gonna be that guy i'm gonna be literally the one person who's like i am glad that sony made sam raimi put venom in the well well here's what i'd say i i feel bad that sam raimi had to put up with a studio forcing it on him but he took like a he took like this major studio like demand and and but he managed to make it work in the movie like he didn't it didn't feel well what i would say is though i still think venom i don't love venom in the movie but i still like topher grace though at as this character and also in that final action scene when you see his face like I I like his performance there. I think he's he he manages to fit in the milieu of this universe of these like dorky ass men who think that they're like so great, but they're really just like assholes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what Eddie Brock is. Is Venom? He's an asshole. Yeah, and I I like that this series gives us like different flavors of villainy because don't get me wrong i love grand operatic villainy too but i also like petty bitch villainy yeah and basically eddie brock is a petty bitch that's a great way to put it you know he's just he's basically doing this because like peter like called him out on his bullshit of get of making you know eddie brock i as a professor i strongly have this like uh feeling with eddie brock i'm like bitch you plagiarized (laughs) and i know yeah i've been around a lot of plagiarists um so yeah i like him and i will say one thing though with sandman i do like at near the end like flint marco and peter have this scene and it's Mm. after venom the stuff with venom is wrapped up i like that scene with them together so even in a part of the movie I don't think fully works, I still like the what Flint Marco does with Peter in that moment because then Peter gets has this reflection where he's like, "Yeah, I've I've done a lot of bad things." Yeah, I mean, granted, he didn't murder an old man in like a carjacking. Well, Corey, but... that was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> again, I I'm a little bit yeah. shaky on that retconning, but again, it's still. You know, it's still the acting is still mostly good with that. Again, even with Church being a bit, you know, one dimensional, I think he's still fine. It's just it is, but it is a part of the movie that if you would, I don't know how you could have made it better, or if you just cut it out, 
know, because again, we have so much already there with Harry. We have so much there with MJ and Eddie Brock that maybe the you could have cut like 10 minutes out of the movie and it wouldn't have felt like you lost much. Yeah, although as I said, I was surprised by how well the CGI on Sandman held up. When you're looking oh, yeah. at a when you're looking at an all CGI creation from this movie from 2007, right? Oh yeah. That could have been a very dicey prospect. Yeah, no, no, the CGI absolutely works and uh I remember actually seeing this in IMAX when it came out, like the real IMAX, like where you yeah. had the the giant screen and seeing that Sandman scene was just mind-blowing like what they could do then um it would hold up i think that hold would hold up today pretty well so yeah um I'm trying to think what other things i want to say about spider-man 3 like i sound almost like more critical than you about it but i still like the movie quite a bit um well i also said to you when in and this is mostly in like maybe like the last third of the movie or last like 40 percent of the movie there are times when I think, like, the timeline almost feels a little fuzzy, where, for instance, how long is Sandman, like, down and out after, like, Peter, like, mm. reduces him to, like, gunk? Or there's this scene where, like, Peter and Harry fight when Harry regains his memory and Peter, like, kicks Harry's ass. How long is it before Harry comes back for the final... How long have Peter and MJ been, like, broken up? It felt like maybe a couple weeks. I mean, I don't know how long that kind of montage, like, shows, like, Peter going bad. But, Mm. yeah, I guess it is a good question. Yeah, you wonder where, like, where Sandman went to, like, reconstitute himself. And when we see him again, he's just walking down an alley in New York City when Venom finds him. But, yeah. That's an odd moment to me when Venom finds Sandman. But, no, I... I remember we liked this movie in 2007 when a lot of people didn't. And I still really like this movie. And I feel a little bad that even Sam Raimi has been like, yeah, I don't like this movie. I don't think it it works. It's one of those movies that when someone on Twitter or one of these websites will ask, like, what's a movie that you like that no one else does? I can point to Spider-Man 3. I think there's a lot of this movie that work a lot more of this movie I think works than doesn't and and I I I can't speak for Sam Raimi maybe there was a lot more he wanted to do with it you know maybe the studio fuckery was so deep that we won't fully know until we you know get one of those books one day that like lays it all on the table um you know I always feel sympathy for a filmmaker who you know has to put up with uh, stuff and but at the same time, you know, if you can compromise and make it work for you, then, then that's cool. Um, you know, it's, uh, the only thing I wish for was that maybe we could have gotten Spider-Man four yeah, I and, will... and see Dylan Baker, uh, fully become the lizard. <laughs> I will say one thing to watching this, this is going to sound weird, but this doesn't feel to me like three movies with the same characters it really feels like a trilogy in the sense that i feel like each movie does a really good job building on what came before in terms of the character arcs oh yeah absolutely no and i think they they knew that like they could lay little bread breadcrumbs that could be explored later on and like that's why like at the end of two 
you know, they don't need to say too much. They just need to have that moment where Harry, you know, opens up the door and looks at one of his dad's old, you know, suits. And that's all you need. And that's why I, when I said to you, I think I might even like Spider-Man 3 more than Spider-Man 1. It's because I think Spider-Man 3 is dealing with some really interesting like thematic and character development material that I feel like a lot of times superhero movies like don't get to. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of times superhero movies are kind of stuck in like the origin phase or the like early heroism phase. Yeah, or or they kind of or they repeat themselves a bit. Like, you know, like for example with those uh like the X-Men prequel movies, you know, with uh McAvoy and Fassbender as uh you know, you kind of you kind of wish that maybe in you know as good as first class and days of future past are, they don't really cap you know they don't really progress any of that by the time you get to that third movie, and of course I encourage all of you to go back to listen to Apocalypse. Our <laughs> review of that is one of my personal favorites, but like you look at but again so a lot of times that's the the third movie yeah it doesn't capitalize on that whether that's you know, X-Men Apocalypse or or Superman 3. Yeah. This movie, Spider-Man 3 and Iron Man 3 are like yes. some of the only instances where I think the third movie actually really does mm-hmm. move the ball yeah. forward in significant ways. Exactly. Or or maybe Ornus or arguably Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah, Thor Ragnarok is yeah. excellent. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think to wrap things up uh, and the one last thing I want to put a cap on, I think, with this our conversation, you know, it's just it's just nice to revisit these films and see where like obviously a lot of decisions were made by the studio at hand. Avi Arad was the producer on these movies, and he was kind of like the poor man's Kevin Feige <laughs> in in a way. That's how I'd call him. Like he was sort of the guy running kind of like the Marvel movies before Feige really came in. But it's nice to have like superhero movies that feel like they have a voice. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, there are some exceptions. I mean, James Gunn comes to mind, Joss Whedon to an extent, but Raimi was one of those guys. Yeah. And for all the problems, apparently with the studio in Spider-Man three, these movies feel like a singular vision. Yeah, he he actually had some he he understood what Lee and Ditko were doing in those comics, and he managed to kind of keep the spirit of those stories while still finding his own voice in it and finding what he wanted to say about you know what it means to be a teenager and to fall in love and you know come into your own with all these feelings that you don't know what to do. <laughs> Yeah, so let's wrap up with looks great, it's full of feelings. Yeah, it's a big, you know, webby hug. <laughs> so if any of you guys have thoughts about these films, you know, let us know. I'm sure at least a few of you listening have very strong opinions. You know, it is the internet after all. So Wage of Cinema, Gmail, and uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, please give us a tweet. Maybe we'll... You know, our probably our next review spoilers is No Way Home. So, if maybe we'll read one of those reactions when uh, we review that film. So, that that might be incentive for some of you if you want to give us some feedback. Um, 
And thanks for listening, everyone. This was a lot of fun to dive back into this world and get hyped for the return of Doc Ock. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you, everyone. I'm I'm Jack. I am Trash Panda Corey. And the wages of cinema is. I still can't get it. Have a good night. Good night. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. <laughs>